It's great to be with you this evening. I'm very encouraged and blessed to hear that we are preparing this on video as well as in this event. Uh, I've loved to preach the message of grace for some years now. I know for myself, having started my Christian life, to be honest, as a backslider, I was a professional backslider. And then uh, one Sunday in church, I was really arrested by the preaching. And then I tried very hard to give myself wholly to God. Sometime later, I was filled with the Holy Spirit. I left my secular job. I went to training college. I became a pastor. I've been in pastoral ministry for some years. And I guess I was, yeah, I think somewhat given to prayer. I was working hard. But I would say this, that always behind my mind, that thought of, are you really doing enough? Uh, Do you think God's satisfied? Uh, When you got off your knees, like, why didn't you stay a bit longer? And uh, when you read your Bible, have you really read enough? And so always that kind of, if I could only feel at home with God and really feel all was well. You know, I knew times, obviously, of tremendous joy in the Lord, but that was a kind of shadow behind my spiritual life for years. Until, for me, there came a moment when I began to see the grace of God. And uh, for me, at first, it was like seeing a break in the clouds, uh, like I suddenly saw some blue sky, and I thought... Is that true, what I just saw? I felt I saw grace. I felt I saw free acceptance, total acceptance. And, and it's like the clouds closed again. I thought, did I see something then? And uh, as I pursued it, I really felt God whispered into my heart, I will persuade you that this is true. And it was amazing. It was such kindness from God. Not only have you seen something, but it's almost like God saying, okay, I'll take responsibility. I will persuade you of this. And I began to dig into the scriptures, and I began to preach the grace of God, and I found, hey, God set me free, God made me feel at home in his presence, I accepted, and it's been a joy to preach the grace of God now for some years, and yes, thank God, I have seen lots of people responding, I've had letters from people about reading God's lavish grace, and so on, and that's been translated now into many, many languages. I just heard last week it's being, being translated into Polish. It's going to Poland uh, in a couple of months' time. It's going uh, even into Iran. It's in Farsi. It's going out there more and more. And the grace of God sets us free to serve him joyfully, to serve as sons with the Father, to know the Father's love, to feel total acceptance. So I'm praying that as we go through these three evenings, it will be life-changing for many of us, that many of us will, perhaps for the first time, or maybe get it freshly underlined in our hearts, hey, I'm accepted, I'm at home with God. Not only that, I'm freed from the dominion of doubt and fear and sin itself, loosed to serve joyfully in God's kingdom. I'm going to read to you from Romans, I'm with you. Romans, I use the NASB, but I'm only reading one verse at first anyway. Romans 5 and verse 17. In this uh, chapter, Paul is comparing and contrasting the damage done by Adam's fall, his rebellion, his unbelief and sin that turned us all into children of disobedience. It wrecked every one of us. When he sinned, we all fell. And then it compares it with the act of righteousness, which is shorthand for the life of Jesus, his obedience to death, his triumph on the cross, the resurrection, his obedience has made all of those who are in him thoroughly acceptable. And Romans 5, he keeps on saying, one sin did this, 
One act of righteousness did that. And he goes through uh, a chapter that's not so easy to read, uh, giving this comparison. I'm just going to pick one of those verses, then we'll pray, then we'll get into the subject. Romans 5.17. If by the transgression of the one, Adam of course, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you for your purpose to bless us with your word. We thank you for your desire for us to feel at home, accepted, delighted in, in your presence. The joy of knowing we're beloved of God. Holy Spirit, please come and take my words tonight. Interpret them into our hearts. Come and be our teacher, please, Lord. I pray that people will hear more than my voice. They will hear your voice in their hearts. And that, Lord, you'll bring us right into your beautiful presence with release and joy and the sense of the favor of God upon us. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the verse I read to you contains that beautiful phrase that we are to reign in life. We do. We reign in life through this abundance of grace. Reigning in life is a vivid phrase. It talks about being on top, really. The Old Testament talks about being the head, not the tail. That we are over the circumstances, not under them. We're reigning in life. And uh, that's not the only verse like that in the New Testament. It speaks also of our always being led in triumph in Christ. We're always in triumph. And then we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So these extravagant phrases are scattered through the New Testament. We're reigning in life. We're more than conquerors. We're always in triumph. And this is the Christian. This is the, what it is to be a Christian. And something in our hearts says yes. And yet sadly, something in our experience says, if only, if only. Because surely you feel that's what I ought to be. And all too often we feel it's not really where I am. And we hit kind of crises sometimes. We maybe go to a conference. We hear preaching that stirs us afresh. Maybe there's an invitation. Maybe we come forward perhaps with some tears and say, God, I'm sorry for what I have been. I'm sorry that I'm not all I should be. I want to reign in life. Maybe it comes at the end of the year. You look back. On a year you've just lived through, maybe someone gives you a new diary and uh, you look at all those unspoiled pages and you think, Lord, I haven't, I haven't wrecked anything yet for next year. I'm sorry about last year, but from now on, Lord. And, and we come to a kind of a decision. And, and sadly, we can miss the point right then. And that's sad because our motivation stirred up, which is great. And we think, right now I'm going to live for God. And in that very moment, we make a full step. And it's almost like there are two doors, and, and we go through the wrong one. What do I mean? Well, what we tend to do is think, well, how can I reign in life? And we think, well, I'll, I'm, going to get hold, I'm going to just get hold of things. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to read my whole Bible this year. I don't get into the Bible enough. And, and so we think, right, oh, how many pages are there? Uh, right, I'm going to divide that by 365. Uh, so I'm going to read like six or seven pages a day. I am going to read the Bible this year. And, uh, and, and I'm going to set my alarm clock. I'm going to set it earlier. I'm going to get up. I'm going to pray. I'm going to seek God in the way I haven't done. 
And, and even, I'm going to witness. I'm going to, some people, they just give themselves a lot of rules to live by. I know a friend of mine said, I am going to witness to one person every day. And he, he, lived, he put that rule on his life. And he told me one night, he's just going to bed. He's so exhausted. He thought, oh man, I haven't witnessed to anybody. And he got up and he's searching the streets trying to find someone. <laughs> because this is how he's going to reign in life. He, he's, he's put some rules on, some laws to live by. If I can keep these laws, I'll reign in life. But you know, that's just kind of, it's not reading the small print. That's not what it says. It doesn't say, if we will give ourselves some rules to live by and keep them, then we'll reign in life. It really doesn't say that. It's really, a, in fact, the Bible says the very opposite. It says if we, if we try by law to arrive there, we won't get there. In fact, the Bible says this, you who be justified by law have fallen away from grace. Now, when Paul wrote that, he wrote it to the Galatian church because what happened in the early church was this, that the gospel came with such freedom. It was radically different. You can come to God and be accepted. You were freed by the grace of God. And Paul, for instance, went to Galatia. He preached the gospel. That says, it says that many were saved. Uh, we read in Galatians 3, they received the Holy Spirit. Miracles were done among them. This is a great church. And then Paul leaves, and when he leaves, in behind him come the Judaizers. They come in behind him and they say, oh great, you've received our Messiah. This is wonderful. Our, our prophets told us that the Gentiles would receive our Messiah. Well done. This is good. You're in. Uh, but listen, um, we've known God longer than you. Um, if you want to please God, uh, you do need to be circumcised. And uh, you must keep the Sabbath. And, and, and don't forget the feast days. And don't eat that. And it's like they just added the law to complete their salvation. They added some rules to make them sure they were in. And Paul hears about this. Paul has traveled on and he hears about these new Christians picking up the law. And he says to them, you who'd be justified by law have fallen from grace. Now we don't tend to use the phrase that way. We say, oh he doesn't come to church anymore, that guy. He's backslidden, he's fallen from grace. That's the way we tend to use that phrase. It's like, well, you've fallen. No, no, Paul doesn't use fallen from grace for backsliders. He uses fallen from grace for legalists. That's, that's literally how it is in the Bible. You added some stuff. And in adding it, you missed the point. You're saying that the death of the holy, righteous, innocent, perfect Son of God on the cross, where that beautiful one who knew no sin, was made sin for us, is not enough. You need to add some stuff. And sadly, we can pick that up very early in our Christian life. It's like when you get saved sometimes, the very first time that you come to God, it can be, you know, you imagine you're, you've heard the gospel maybe, or maybe you've met a Christian, and you think, wow, what is it with her? But she seems just happy, she's free. And what is it with you? Oh, come to church, you go along. And you think, well, they're all a bit like it. They're kind of happy people, uh, bright. Maybe I need to clean up my act. You try and change yourself and you can't. And, and you think, how do I get to be like them? How do I please God? And then one day you hear the gospel. Just as you are. Jesus died 
for sinners. And, and you hear it clear like you've never, ever heard it before, that the gospel is free. And you, you say, wow, I come just as I am. And you walk forward, you receive the gospel, you're born of God. You think, wow, I'm home with Jesus. And it can happen that very day. Someone comes alongside and says, you received, yeah, I received the Lord today. Oh, God, I'm so pleased. I just need to share some things with you. Oh, yeah, right, tell me. Uh, now you're a Christian. Um, you have to read the Bible every day. Uh, you have to have a quiet time. Uh, you, you, you have to pray. Um, and you have to come to the meetings. And uh, I don't think you should wear those sort of clothes. And, uh, and, and, and you shouldn't have your hair cut like that. And so you say... Uh, Okay, thank you. Yeah, I got that. Or I won't do that anymore. Right, I'll have to. Do, yeah, I've got that. Yeah, I've got it. Okay, uh, thank you. I feel so released today. I feel <laughs> I've been wonderfully set free. And so from day one, you think, what happened? Did, did I did I get freed or did I get loaded? What happened to me? And so from day one, there's this kind of confusion. Am I accepted or is it if I do these things? I'm accepted. Hint, if I don't do them, maybe I'm not. So people get unsure from the beginning. They're born unhealthily. Very quickly they get injected with all kinds of fears and doubts and questions. And if that isn't dealt with ruthlessly, you carry that on. And if a whole church is filled with that, if all the people, if that's the culture of the church, that we're watching one another... To see, are you keeping the rules? Then fellowship, no, no, you don't know. The Bible says, as you received, as Christ received you, receive one another. But you don't know how Christ has received you. It's hard to receive one another. It's difficult to give up by grace because you don't know you've received grace. And so we're in problems from the beginning. Paul says in Romans 6, 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Again, Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law to those who believe. You say, wait a minute, Terry, end of the law? We're not under law? What are you saying? And that's where we get confused, and it's, it's very important that we don't just sort of shout grace. We need to build it from the scriptures. We need to say, what does the Bible say? Doesn't Jesus say that the law must be fulfilled? Doesn't Jesus indicate that you've got to be under the law? Paul's saying you're not. Where are we with this? In fact, I would think many churches, if you said to the people, how many here would say, we are under law, put up your hand? Or if you think we are not under law, put up your hand. I think if you did that in a church, big public meeting, how many will say, I think many would think, well, what's the pastor doing? Ah, where are we? Because <laughs> they're just not sure. Are we under law? Not, they're not quite... <laughs> A friend of mine said he had the chance to preach in a school assembly, which was kind of illegal in England, but he got a chance to preach, and uh, the guy told him, you can preach to all the students, but you must not make an invitation. You can preach. So he's preaching away. And, and he really, he realizes these hundreds of young guys are listening to him very, very well. And, and so he says to them, listen, obviously, it's not appropriate for me to make an appeal here this morning, but I'm really curious, if I had made an appeal, how many of you... <laughs> Now, now, I'm not going to do that tonight, okay? But what is our relationship with law? How do we stand with God in relation with law? That is such a key issue. And Paul's dealing with it a lot. 
The whole of the book of Galatians is about it. Much else of the New Testament is about it. It's one of the big battles that was fought in the early church. What is our relationship with law? And to be honest, for us in the 21st century, not just the law as recorded in the scripture, but the many laws we've added as evangelical Christians that make us acceptable. What is our relationship with law? If you just turn over the page, if you still have your Bibles open, into Romans 7. I'm just going to read the first half dozen verses in Romans 7, which I think give us the most succinct teaching on our relationship with law, probably in the New Testament. We could read the whole of Galatians, but we haven't time. So just read half a dozen verses. The first six verses of Romans 7. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. That sounds a bit final, actually. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. Now, if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies... She's free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Therefore, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law We're at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the letter. So what's Paul saying? He's saying that the law is like our husband. He has authority over us. It's as though we were married to the law. And as our husband, he tells us his requirements. He says, you shall not do this, you shall not do this, you shall not do this. And he has authority to do that. You can't say, well, actually, I want to be married to Jesus, thank you. No, he says, no, you can't do that. You're already married. You're married to the law. The law is your husband. You're married to the law. You can't just go off to another. You're married to the law. And actually, this rather overbearing husband who's always finding fault with you, and saying, don't do that, stop doing that, don't do that. You can't argue with him, because the truth is, he's always right. And in your heart, you know he's right. But it begins to get you down, and actually what happens is that Satan, whom the Bible calls the accuser of the brothers and sisters, the accuser, he kind of gets behind that and starts condemning you. So it seems like this husband's forever putting you down, forever saying you're wrong, and, and you can't argue because he's right. These are good laws. But you just feel condemned continually. One other thing about this husband, he never lifts a finger to help you. He doesn't say, can I ha-? I'm not talking about any husband here, okay? So. <laughs> But he never, he never says, hey, can I come to your aid? No, he doesn't do that. It's kind of written in stone, and he's not offering help. He's just telling you. So here we are. We are married to a husband who's always right, 
He's always showing you where you're wrong. You can't argue with him, really. He's never going to help you. And Jesus said, the law will never pass away. So you're permanently married to an overbearing, fault-finder husband who's never going to die. <laughs> Ain't religion grand. I mean, isn't that lovely? <laughs> you are permanently married to this overbearing husband. That's, that's what seems to be being said here quite clearly, verse by verse, we've worked through. Now listen, suddenly in verse 4, this is so important we understand it, he seems to be suggesting our problem is while the husband keeps living. That's what he's saying in verse 1. While the husband's still alive, you're in trouble. There's a kind of hint, maybe he won't stay alive. But Jesus says, no, no, he's never going to die. Never going to die. The law will never pass away. Verse 4, therefore, my brothers, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. What does that mean? It means a death has happened. What death? Well, of course, the death of Jesus, who came and stood in our place. And we are in him, the Bible teaches. That's the most popular phrase Paul has for the Christian, someone who is in Christ, who's fully identified with Christ. Jesus had two relationships with the law. The first one was total innocence. He kept the law perfectly. When he died, he's, the Bible calls him innocent innocent. That's God's assessment. He stood and said, which of you finds fault with me? He said, Satan's coming. He's got nothing on me. So one relationship he has with the law is perfection. But he has another relationship with the law because coming to the cross comes this phenomenal substitution. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. In that moment, he became, as it were, the biggest lawbreaker the world has ever seen. Because God put all our lawbreaking on him. And he stood in our place. And on the cross, as it says in Galatians, he was thoroughly cursed. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. He stood in our place. And the law found him utterly guilty. And God is just and vindicated. And the law is thoroughly vindicated. And he is cursed like the biggest lawbreaker that's ever lived. And he dies to the law once and for all. His relationship to the law is over. He dies, he takes the full punishment and dies. The law is vindicated, he is condemned. And he dies to the law. And Paul says this, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Because you were in Christ, you died to the law's power. We find the same thing is taught in Galatians 2, 19 and 20. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Through the law, I died to the law. I was crucified with him. I was crucified with him. So, Paul says, therefore, my brothers, you were made to die to the law. You no longer have a relationship with law. See, some people would say this, we know that only grace can save you. Only grace can save you, but you have to go back to the law to be sanctified. That is quite common teaching. Grace, only Jesus can save, but you go back to the law to get sanctified. That, that's, that's not what the Bible says. 
The Bible says you died to it. You, you, you're no longer in relationship with the law. And some say, well, you must have a little bit of law. For what? Well, let's, let's see what it says. It says in verse 6, now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. So we serve in newness of the letter, a uh, newness of the spirit, not oldness of the letter. The letter kills, he says elsewhere. Let's have a little law so you can get a little killed. <laughs> the spirit gives life. It's important that you understand you've been discharged, released, discharged. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones used the illustration of a man who's been in national service, who's been in the army, say, for a couple of years. He's been uh, subject to the authority of his officers, maybe the sergeant major, shouting at him, do right, left, do this, do that, and just obeying. And he says, there comes the day when you are released or discharged, which is what this word actually means. You're discharged, which means you're no longer in, you're out. And he imagines a, a soldier, and he's been discharged, and he's, uh, it's all over now. And he's strolling across the parade ground, and he's got no tie on, he's got his jacket thrown over his shoulder, and uh, he's so casual. And, and the sergeant comes around the corner. He says, soldier! He thinks, oh, sergeant! He thinks, no, wait a minute, I'm out. <laughs> Bye, Sarge. And, and, and he says, it doesn't matter how much he shouts at you, he can't touch you. You're discharged. Now, we need to understand this, beloved. We are discharged from the law. The relationship is over. I don't have any more relationship. Now, so what? So I can just run free, do what I like? Well, see what it actually says. Back to verse 4 again. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So that what? So that you might be joined to another. To him who was raised from the dead. In order that we might bear fruit... For God. Now this is ever such an important passage. You died to the law, you're no longer in relationship with that husband, in order that you might be joined to, it's still marriage language, you might be joined to who? Him who was raised from the dead. Who's that? Well, Jesus, of course. We are now married to Jesus. In order, it says, that we might bear fruit. Now that's a new idea. We haven't had fruit before. The law didn't make me fruitful. The Lord didn't give me fruit. Now, now I joined a new husband in order that I might bear fruit. Ah, this is organic change from the inside. This isn't just rules coming at me. This is life. I can bear fruit. In fact, it says in Galatians again, and Galatians 3.21, a very important statement. It says this. If a law had been given which was able to impart life. Yes, then, righteousness would be based on law. If a law had been given that could impart life. See, if the law could actually change you, if it could impart life to you, well, yeah, let's just be legalists. Let's just tell the law. Let's go downtown, St. Louis. Let's go into all the schools where there's such backsliding and difficulty. Just go down there. Just say, you shall not steal. <laughs> you shall not bear false witness. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not... Just let them hear it. Wow, got it. Got... Now, if the law had been given that could impart life, there is no such law. The law, can't imp... the law is an impotent husband. 
He can't impart life. He says, this is what I require of you, but he doesn't impart any life to you. Now, I've died to that impotent husband in order that I might be joined to this one who's been raised from the dead, who is no impotent husband. He's full of power. He says, my joy I give to you. I've shed abroad my love in your heart by the Holy Spirit. My peace. I, this is a life-imparting husband. He changes me from the inside. He does an amazing... He changes me. He, he gives me joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's all coming from him. He gives the life. Therefore, I never go back to that old husband who just gives me rules. Jesus gives me life. He imparts life. He changes me. He produces what the Bible says, the fulfilling of the law, love your neighbor, your neighbor. How can I do that? Well, through my relationship with Jesus, through sins forgiven, through responding to the cross, through knowing the energy of the Holy Spirit he gives me. He changes me from the inside. I am discharged from the law. That relationship which never produced anything is over. When I say never produced anything, you might say, be careful, what are you saying, Terry? Well, Paul says this, the law is good Providing you law, use it lawfully, he says to Timothy, knowing it's not for the righteous, but for sinners. So the law hasn't passed away. The law is still there. It's we who've died. It's not we say, oh, the law is over. And we're not saying that. The law isn't over. We've died to the law so that we can now be joined to Jesus. The relationship's over because of what's happened to us. So the law does its job. In fact, the law leads us to Christ, it says in Galatians. In fact, if we read on through 7 for a little while in Romans 7, we might say, see, Paul's doing this. He's writing to a church at Rome, which would be a mixture of former Jews and former Gentiles. Now they're in Christ. And he's aware of the contention and conflict that could be when Jewish people come with all their tender conscience about, am I allowed to eat that? Am I free to do this? And pagans who've never had these restrictions, they just found Jesus. And and he knows there could be a lot of contention in the Roman church. He doesn't want two churches. He doesn't want a Jewish church and a Christian church. He wants the people who are in Christ. So he's trying to write to them. If you read through Romans, he's constantly turning this way and that way, trying to be inclusive, helping them to understand what the gospel has accomplished. And he knows what he said could seem offensive to Jewish people because he seems to be putting the law down. So let's quickly look. What does the law do? It says in Romans 7, I'm reading on, we've stopped reading at verse 6, so verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I wouldn't have known about coveting if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet. So he's saying, first of all, the law defines sin. I wouldn't have known sin apart from the law. The law draws the line. The law says that is acceptable, that is not acceptable. So similar in Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Sin is not a social disease, it's a hostility to God. And it says in John's epistle, sin is the transgressing of the law. It's going over the line. Now, we all have a human conscience. We can instinctively know that's wrong. 
every human being has a conscience, but the conscience can get very defiled, especially in the kind of generation we live in. Well, no, no, you're free. Follow your heart. And all kinds of confusion. And so the law says, no, there's the line. That's the line. So the law is doing a job. It's telling us that's in, that's out. There's the line. So it reveals sin. Secondly, if you read through this passage, we see in verses 8 and 9, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. This commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. He's saying actually the law provokes sin. I was okay until the law said you shall not. It's like saying to your child, I'm just going to the store, don't touch the cookies. The cookies? You know, it's like... <laughs> in English, we're, we're very proud of our parks and gardens, and uh, you can walk through a beautiful park, and wow, there's roses, look at these beautiful flower beds. And then you see the sign, keep off the grass. And people think, whose grass is it anyway? <laughs> it's like, when you're told not to, and sometimes you can see these kind of polls, look, listen, 70% of people still believe in God, don't worry. Yeah, but what kind of God? So if you go out and say, hey, we understand you. Yeah, I still believe there's a kind of God. Oh, wow, let me tell you. God says you should not steal. You should not bear false witness. You should not commit adultery. They don't say, oh, thanks, I didn't realize. Oh, that's really helpful. (laughs) If you start saying, this is what this God requires, you find they come back to, well, why doesn't he stop wars then? And why do children die? And, And it's not like... They take it on board. There's, there's a kind of rebellion. That's what the Bible says. The law provokes. It's a kind of comeback. That's what it says. I was okay till it came. Then it condemned me, verse 9, and I died. And this commandment was supposed to bring life. Actually produced death in me. Then he asked this question, verse 12. So then the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13, difficult verse. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. What does he mean? Well, he means that the law has shown us something. See, a lot of people would say the human race is essentially good. That's often heard and thought. We just need more education, better housing, better opportunity, because the natural goodness of man will surface. Because essentially man is improving down through the ages. He's good, really. And that's thought by a lot of people. Probably even more so a century or so back. Man is getting better and better. He is essentially good. And his goodness will win the day. It's almost like this bottle of water, okay? I found this here. I didn't put it here. Uh, I think it's probably good. I don't know. Hold on. (laughs) Seems quite good to me. But I'm not sure if it's good. I think it's good. Human race, I think it's good. 
But look, what we'll do is this. We will add to it to make sure it's good. So let's take something, and if you will do it with me, please. Imagine that we're adding something that is, what is the command here? It says it's holy and righteous and good. Right, so Paul says the law was added, and the law was nothing wrong. You can't argue with the law, it's good. Right, we're adding to this something that's really good. Imagine it, okay? An imaginary, imaginary ingredient. Take you back to your chemistry classes, okay? We're now adding. This is perfect. It's come down out of heaven. Holy and good. To this which we thought was good, hold on, we're adding all this. Now we try it. Now we'll be okay. Okay, let's try it now. Absolutely dreadful. That is now dreadful. That is horrific. Why? Because what we added was bad? No, no. What we added we know is good. So what does that tell me? I'll tell you what that tells me. That's a lot worse than I realized it was. Doesn't that? That's what the experiment proves. You add something very good to it and it gets worse. So man, that must have been terrible, really. And that's what the Bible's telling us. You don't improve sinners by adding something even holy and good. Why? Nicodemus came to Jesus. He's a teacher sent from God. He's a legalist. He spoke to Jesus and Jesus said to him, before he said anything much, he said, unless you get born again, you won't even see the kingdom. We don't need rules. We need new birth. We need new creation. We need a new heart and a new spirit. It's no good adding rules. You need to be recreated. And that's what this is showing us, that the law has very limited skill. It can bring you to Christ. Once he's brought you to Christ, Christ does the job. You don't go back to the law to finish the job. The law is impotent. It can't do it. So that's what Paul is telling us here. The law leads us to Christ. Christ sets us free. We reign in life. We reign in life then, not by laws, but by the abundance of grace. By freedom, by acceptance on the basis of grace. We reign in life through the abundance of grace. And then the next thing, the next phrase, the free gift of righteousness. All right, so that's part two. Part one, although part two won't be so long, part two is also the free gift of righteousness. You see, sometimes you say to someone, how are you getting on as a Christian? And they very often say, well, I'm a bit up and down. I'd like to suggest to you, it's not so much the up and down as husband to husband. So one minute they're enjoying Jesus, and then the next minute they don't feel they're doing so well, and they revert to, well, I'm trying harder. It's almost like, it's like you did get married, you got a new husband, and then you feel, well, I'm not really doing well, sorry, Jesus, I'm not... I'm not all that I should be. Um, I'll just go back to my old husband and develop my relationship with him. I really do this and I'll make sure I do that. Now, are you really pleased now, Jesus? I've really developed my relationship with my old husband. (laughs) Try that in the world. You know, does that work? (laughs) That doesn't work. Even when Jesus is outside the Laodicean church, he says, I'm outside knocking. He doesn't say, if you will just go back and... No, no, he says... If any man hears my voice, opens the door, I'll come in to him. I'll sup with him. You see, he is the way. You don't need a way to the way. He's the way. 
He's the one. He's the saviour. The law doesn't change you. Jesus does. And even when you feel you've slipped back somewhat, you don't go back to your old husband to develop that relationship in order to please your new husband. You come to Jesus and you keep receiving grace, 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 love and mercy from him. And so it says, yeah, we have abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. You see, our problem is this. We very often feel condemned. That's Satan's work. He gets involved with the law sometimes. You are not doing well. You are not doing enough. The Bible says the devil accuses us day and night. Now, it doesn't say anything else that he does day and night, so I assume that this is his chief weapon. I think it's a fair assumption. He's called the accuser. It's one of his names. He accuses you. He says, call yourself a mother. Call yourself a Christian man. Call you, you're useless. You're, he just bombards you all the time. And if you're not careful, you try to overcome that bombarding by doing more stuff. We'll cover that more on the third night, okay? But for the moment, just to see that, we try to get rid of our... We try to earn points. We try to establish some kind of righteousness. And Paul says this is the tragedy of his Jewish contemporaries. They go around trying to establish a righteousness of their own based on law instead of accepting the righteousness which is from God by faith as a gift. It's almost like, imagine this this arm represents the feeling of condemnation. Lord, I'm so unworthy. I've got all these things I feel against me. I feel I'm not doing enough. I don't feel I'm an impressive Christian. I feel a failure. And Satan condemns you. And what we try to do is cover our condemnation by our sanctification. And so he said, well, I'll pray harder. I'll read more. I'll work harder. And then Satan comes. He says, well, I am doing what I can. I'm praying harder. I'm trying to be kind to people. I'm, I am endeavoring to feel I'm covering this guilt. But the reality is it, doesn't, it won't cover it. Because, you know, you're pressing on, you're praying, you're trying harder. And, th- and then Satan comes to you and says, uh, have you heard about Jonathan? Then what about Jonathan? He fasts twice a week. Oh, no, fast twice a week. Oh, so I pray now, and I read my Bible, and I try, and I, and I fast twice a week. <laughs> I notice you don't, but I do. See, so I'm keeping, and then he comes and says, How you I'm doing a lot better, thank you. Are you. Yeah, I'm very pleased with myself. I expect you're quite proud. Yes, I'm quite, pr- oh no, proud. <laughs> You see, so a lot, of, a lot of Christians feel you can't win. You can't win. If you're doing badly, you're doing badly. If you do better, you're doing badly. <laughs> and, and that's what you say, are you a good Christian? Because they're trying to assess themselves on how they're doing. And they've lost the gospel in that moment. They can't reign in life because they've, they've not read the small print. It doesn't say you reign in life through doing stuff. You reign in life through receiving the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. You receive it. You know it's yours. You accept it. You you step out of darkness into light. Even in the Old Testament, they were prepared for this when they were told, bring a lamb. And they had to bring a lamb that was not diseased, not blind, no broken limbs. 
and, and they would bring their lamb to the priest. And the priest would receive the lamb and the priest would investigate. Mm, yeah, not blind, no broken limbs, it's not diseased. And, and, and you're not standing there thinking, I do hope the priest doesn't notice. I, I've got all dirt and mud here and this is all torn. You're not even thinking, this is irrelevant. The all eyes are on the lamb. Will he find anything wrong with the lamb? No, there's no. And then he would say this, I find no fault in him. Hallelujah. There's nothing wrong with my lamb. I'm accepted. That's where we stand, beloved. There's nothing wrong with our lamb. In that sense, if I can put it this way, I'm not trying to impress God. I found someone who already impressed him. I felt when I was praying once, and God spoke to me about the story of Jacob when he came to his blind elderly father, Isaac. And he knew that Isaac had a son whom he really loved, Esau. Isaac really loved. He was his beloved son. And one day Jacob, the crook, put on Esau's clothes, put skins on his arms and hands, and approached his blind father, hoping he wouldn't be discovered. And as he's getting closer and closer to his blind father, the father says, who's that? And then he smells the fragrance of the clothes, and he touches the hairy arm, and he says, and in that moment, Jacob's, oh, am I going to be all right? And I felt, I was praying one day, it came to me so vividly, I was coming to God and I felt God said to me, don't fear that I will find you hidden in the son I love because I put you in him and I provided that covering for you. And it says that he, Jacob, got blessed, hidden in the son that the father, he got blessed, all the blessings hidden in the beloved son. And I thought God says to me, that's how it is. I've provided you with a beloved son covering. And, and as it says, it's all Ephesians chapter 1. We're accepted in the son that he loves. Not only that, we get all spiritual blessings. See, sometimes you want to pray for someone. They say, would you pray for me? I'd like to receive the spirit. And you want to pray. And they say, oh, I don't know if I'm worthy. People often say, oh, I'm not sure if I'm worthy. I want to say to them, of course you're not worthy. What on earth made you think you're worthy? How long are you going to take to get worthy? No, we, we are accepted. Like, like Jacob, and he received all the spiritual blessings hidden in the Son the Father loved. We're in Christ. We're in the one the Father loves. We're accepted. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There isn't any. It says that in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now, 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 no condemnation. A friend of mine said, when I saw that, really, I underlined it so much, it went right through to the maps. <laughs> there is now no condemnation. It says about, in contrast to the priests of the Old Testament, that they could never sit down because they kept on offering, and then they had to offer again, then an offer again, and then it says about the Lord Jesus, for by one offering, by, he sat down, because by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's perfected us for all time. It's a done deal. He's declared us righteous. This righteousness is ours as a gift. It's free. It's, it's wonderful. 
John Bunyan tells the story that, and John Bunyan, the old Puritan, wrote Pilgrim's Progress. There was a day when he was feeling low and discouraged, and, and he said he saw a vision. Interesting. He saw a vision. And in the vision, he saw Christ as his righteousness. He said, in that moment, I realized I couldn't trust in my frame. He uses that old English word, which you sometimes get, you get in one of the old hymns, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. It means kind of frame of mind, how I feel. But wholly lean on Jesus' name. It's like, I, I suddenly realized, he said, I saw Jesus as my righteousness. He said, it didn't matter how good I felt, I couldn't add to that righteousness. And it didn't matter how bad I felt, I couldn't take away from that righteousness. Because Jesus is my righteousness, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I wake up tomorrow morning, I'm not thinking, well, Lord, I'm, I'm really going to try hard here. No, thank you, Jesus, I'm righteous again this morning. You perfected for all time. It's a done deal. We reign in life because of the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. That's why we reign in life. Jesus has done it. He's done it. Have you accepted it? It's free. You can own it for yourself. The thing is, otherwise you're forever trying. You see, you could go home from a meeting like this and say, Lord, thank you. I'm, I'm with you. We're together. I'm back with you. And tomorrow morning, let me pretend I'm one of the uh, wives here. All right, we get down. We're going to pray tomorrow morning. Lord Jesus, I'm going to pray. God, I'm going to pray this morning. Bless my husband. Bless him at the workplace. Um, Make him a great witness. Give him opportunities to name your name. I do wanna, I want him to be fruitful. Um, I'd love to see him at lunchtime. That would be nice. Uh, maybe, I, maybe I could, I, to, I know what I'll do. I'll go down at lunchtime. He won't expect me, but I'll, get, I'll go. And then we'll meet. And then we'll have a lunch. Oh, it would be so nice. Oh, I'm supposed to be praying. Oh, praying. Um, oh, God. Um, Right. Missionary, the missionaries. Oh God, the missionaries. Oh, it's a missionary supper on Friday. Lord, bless the missionary supper as we come together uh, and have supper together. Uh, I'm supposed to get the salad. Oh yeah, the salad. <laughs> I haven't got the salad. I said I'd do the salad and the quiche. I'm done the quiche. Um, I need to go down to the store. I'll get the salad. Oh yeah, what, I mustn't forget. What, what kind of salad shall I get? Oh, I could go. I could go and get to see my husband at the same time. That'd be nice. I could. I'd get to see my husband. I'd buy the salad. Ah, oh, it'd be nice actually. It'd be fun. And then Satan comes. You see, he says, "Oh, mighty woman of intercession, are you prevailing in the heavenlies?" They say, "Oh no, I'm useless." I can't pray, I just hope, I you know, try, and the brain goes out the window, I'm useless, I'm a terrible Christian, I, I can't pray, oh God. I better get back to my reading, where was I? Uh, oh yeah, I remember 13 days behind, wasn't I? Uh, <laughs> what was it? It was, it was a, a Leviticus, wasn't it? Oh yeah. And uh, I'll read it, yeah. And uh, he shall remove... From the offering, all the fat of the bull, of the sin of the offering, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat which is on the entrails, and the two kidneys, with the fat that's on them, which is on the loins, and on the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. You see, and then Satan comes as getting a lot out of it, are you? 
You see, you think, nah, I have a clue what it's all about. <laughs> and then you say, I'm a useless Christian. See, I, I'll probably have a terrible day because I didn't pray properly and I didn't understand my reading. Boy, I'm going to miss the bus. I'm going to have a terrible day because I failed God this morning. See, that people think like that. And then they, they assess that, that, that's, that that's, I'm that kind of a Christian. I'm a useless Christian. They don't think, no, no, thank you, Jesus. You're my righteousness this morning. Hallelujah. See, otherwise, last night he was your righteousness, but something terrible must have happened in the night. Because <laughs> now you're a useless Christian. <laughs> See, what happened in the night? You slept through the night. That's all that happened. <laughs> you're still in Christ. He's still your righteousness. You're still under grace. So you just have to learn to refuse Satan's accusation and celebrate the wonder of what God has done. He is our righteousness. He has set us free. He has done a phenomenal thing for us. We are new creatures. One verse we'll finish with is back in Romans 5 again, where we read in verse 14, Death reigned through Adam till Moses even over those who have not sinned in the likeness of the offence of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. Now the whole argument of Romans 5 depends on this. Adam is a type of Christ. Now we don't tend to think of Adam as a type of Christ. Because, well, he was a sinner. You can think of King David as a type of Christ. You can think of Shepherd Moses as a type of Christ. You can think, to be honest, of the ark as a type of Christ. You have to be inside for safety. There's all kinds of types of Christ in the Old Testament. We tend not to think of Adam as a type of Christ. But the Bible says he's a type of Christ. In what sense? In this sense. He represented the human race. At one time, he was the human race. He represented us when he sinned we were all affected we were all tainted we all became sinners and you can't in your mind say ah I remember when I was in the garden of Eden oh yeah I remember when I no you don't remember that it says in the bible you were in Adam that's what it says that's, that's, that's how this whole chapter is argued his sin made us sinners and then we become sinners by action, voluntarily as well. But we are children of disobedience by nature. By nature, children of wrath, the Bible says. It's in us. It doesn't matter how much you try to be good. Adam still represents you. He's your representative. So you, you, you might go down to the street, you, you might see a little child here, or an elderly lady, and the traffic's buzzing past, and you say, oh, hold on, hold my hand, hold on, wait a minute. It's clear. Okay, here we go. Have a nice day. Oh, some more. You want to go back? Okay, hold on. Oh, wait, wait, no, wait. Oh, okay, here we go. Have a nice day. You, see, you could do that all day. And the Bible says this, all your righteousness is filthy rags. All your righteousness, all this stuff does not get you out of Adam. So you're just completing what 
The Puritans called glorious sins. <laughs> you don't improve on your case because you're still in Adam. What you need is to be taken, you need to be born again. You need another birth. You need to be part of, you need to be under a new head. You need to be in Christ. Now, Christ is my righteousness. Before, I was in Adam and I was a sinner because I was in Adam. Now I'm taken out of Adam and by his Jesus act of righteousness, I'm made righteous. Now Jesus is my righteousness. The unchanging righteousness of Jesus. So now I can go down to the street and there's a child there and an elderly lady. Excuse me, I'm going through. Hallelujah. <laughs> so, so, so what am I now? See, knocking an old lady out of the way or a child, does that take you out of Jesus? No. So what am I now? I'm a righteous granny basher. <laughs> okay. Hallelujah. I'm still righteous. I'm still righteous. I'm in Jesus. He's my righteousness. Hallelujah. It's what he did that made me righteous. That's the gospel. You say, this is the most dangerous gospel I've ever heard. <laughs> Let's get them back under law to play safe. No, that's not. See, Paul answered the next. What? Shall we carry on sinning then? So that grace can abound? That's what he says. Actually, where have I heard that before? Shall we carry on sinning? It's the next chapter. If God's prepared to call us righteous because we're in Jesus, well, let's do what we like then. That question comes to the surface. The great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. If you've never been asked that kind of question, you're not preaching the gospel. The gospel forces that question because the gospel's a scandal. It's a scandal. God, God calls us righteous. He declares us righteous. To him who doesn't work but believes, his faith is regarded as righteousness. It's, a, it's outrageous. So shall we carry on sinning then? Well, it gets a pretty quick answer in chapter 6. No. Or as the old King James has, God forbid. <laughs> Although the word God is not in the Greek at all. God forbid. Or as J.B. Phillips, that true Englishman, translates it, what a ghastly thought. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we carry on? Let's carry on sinning then. Well, actually, chapter 6 is going to explain to us the next aspect it's going to show us, no, no, that there's more to say. But it's important, to be honest, that you don't rush too quickly. I felt God said to me some time ago, it's a bit like painting. I know when I was at school, as a small child, we used to do watercolour painting. And if you want to paint a, a, an open-air scene, you, you paint the sky blue, use a lot of water, keep the light colour, not like little children, make it dark blue, stick the blue on. No, a lot of water, keep it light. And then just do a, a wash down the page. That's your blue sky. Tomorrow we'll paint green field and a brown tree. You say, no, I want to paint the tree now. No, no, leave it till tomorrow. We'll do that tomorrow. That's not a picture. I want to do a picture. Leave it till tomorrow. No, no, I want to paint it now. You see, if you, if you paint on your blue sky a green field and a brown tree... You don't get blue and green and brown. You get yuck. <laughs> and, and people tend to do that. They say, but what you're saying is free. You're just free. I mean, this is dangerous. It's not a complete picture. That's right. It's not a complete picture. But it's true. It's true. 
And what we'll cover tomorrow night will not make this less true. And it's very important to paint the rest onto what we said tonight. If you say it too quickly, you begin to think, oh, I see, it's if I do well then. Because chapter 6 is going to show us how to do well. But it's built onto chapter 5. It doesn't fudge in with it. Because if you do it too quickly, you think, oh, I see, oh so, so if you do well then, you're accepted. No, no, you're accepted. And because you're accepted, you're going to start doing well as well. But you need to get this home and dry. You need to let the paint dry. All right, so tonight we're finished. You're righteous. You can go out there and bash grannies and you're still righteous. Right. Now, now here's the question. Is St. Louis ready for you? Can you be trusted for a night? Knowing I'm righteous. I'm not going back tomorrow. I'm righteous. I want to invite you to come back so we can go on. As Brian said in the book, God's Lavish Grace, we can cover so much more in a book. There are many aspects. There's something about what I've said tonight that sounds really scandalous. I was preaching it in Spain once on a very hot day. Lots of people there. And there's a gentleman there in a dark suit. And uh, while I'm preaching, he stood up. I've never had this happen to me before in preaching. It was really lovely. He stood up and said, this is outrageous. He said, I thought, oh, wonderful. (laughs) I felt really Pauline, you know, like St. Paul. This is outrageous. I said, sir... You're hearing the scandal of the gospel. But let me finish. By the time I finished, he was happy. <laughs> but it, it's shocking. I was once preaching in, in Cape Town, South Africa. And uh, at the end of the meeting, this kind of meeting, where we just spelt it out. I mean, it was getting ever so hot. It was like high 80s, low 90s. It's in a big tent, a place called Constantia in Cape Town. And people were there in shorts and stuff. And this big Africana guy came and his wife's next to him. And, and she's wearing a navy blue suit and a hat and long gloves and, uh, and tears down her face. And she said, I've been a Christian as long as I can remember. She said, is what you said true? I've never heard that before. And I said, I said, I said yeah, I've just had verse by verse. This is the Bible. She said, I've never heard it. I've never heard it. I went back a year later, and I saw this same guy, and his wife's there next to him, and she looks bright, and he said to me, it's like I've got a new wife. (laughs) For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, in that freedom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of grace. We thank you for setting us free. We thank you, Jesus, so very much that God made you who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in you. Thank you tonight. You declare us righteous. Thank you. We're not under law. We're not trying to prove ourselves. We thank you, Jesus. We trust in your finished work. We thank you on the cross who said, it is finished. We thank you we're not trying to add to what you finished. We thank you we're not going to 
fall from grace by adding rules to justify ourselves. We celebrate the wonder of the freedom of your grace towards us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your commitment to us. Hallelujah.